Hello, Legends. Before we get into the episode, I just want to quickly tell you about a brand new show that I have just released. It's called Crime at Bedtime. And as the name suggests, it's been designed with those in mind who like to go to sleep at night listening to a fascinating true crime story. We'll release a brand new episode every single Monday, but right now there is a stack of episodes for you to binge straight away. So go check it out. It's called Crime at Bedtime. It's available wherever you get your podcasts from. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hello, this is a prepaid call from... Hey, Anthony Duke. To accept this call, press zero. To re- this call is from a correction facility and is subject to monitoring reporting. Then they came back because they found some stabbings in my backyard. According to the officer that was in my backyard prior to me coming home, he found that. He was not, shall we say, a person who was lily white. Um, So, I mean, he was known, but I don't think he was known for murder until the actual murder occurred. So I put it together. I said, well, obviously, them little stabbing halves you got match something. He says, yeah, you're right, something matched. Hello, and welcome back to One Minute Remaining. My name is Jack Lawrence, the host and creator of this show. This is part two of my chat with Anthony Duke, the man serving a life sentence without the possibility of parole for murder, a crime he has always maintained he's innocent of. If you're yet to hear part one, well, it is that time to hit pause, head on back and catch up. So as we know, these men and women are serving lengthy sentences inside prison. And, as we've heard in the past from the likes of David Talley, violence is always just around the corner. And one morning, Tony called me after his institution had just come off lockdown. And he talked me through just how much violence and death surrounds him on a daily basis. I was just going to tell you we've been on lockdown. We just got off. I didn't get your message until Uh, an hour ago. (coughs) Fair enough. What, um, what, what, uh, what was the prison lockdown for? Uh, gang fight. Right. Does that happen uh, a lot? Yeah. How do you avoid that stuff? Yeah, I mean, uh, well, I stay out of it. I, I try to do my best to not associate with the type of people that are doing things that are unproductive. Yeah. You know, or unrighteous. You know, something that's not good. You know, if you're, if you're, you reap what you sow. So if you're doing things that are bad, then bad's going to come your way. Of course. 
You know, I know that firsthand because I've caused some mayhem since I've been down this time, you know. It's been a long journey. This last decade itself is, is a story in itself. And <clears throat> until one finds hope, you know, they got, they, everyone has their own journey to take. So some people are just more careless than others. Or they just love something that's of this world that, that really doesn't matter. Yeah. And, you know, until they figure out they figure out what really matters in life. It's going to keep running into brick walls and hurting themselves because at the end of the day, we can be one of the best things for ourselves or we can be our own worst enemies. There's been a lot of murders, overdoses, suicides in this year alone, and this year's not even over. I know in one of your messages you told me a, a person in a cell next to you took their own life. Um, is that a, a common occurrence with inside the facility? It has been. Every two weeks we've been locked down because of either a murder, a suicide, or an overdose. Wow. Causing death. For as many two weeks as you can count back, we've been locked down for a period of days because of it. I try to focus on what's important. I look to the future, so I, I I do my best to look through the chaos and the mayhem, find a spiritual peace that gets me through to where none of what goes on around me really affects me. Someone who is also affected by what's going on in the prison in which Tony is incarcerated it's a person that first got in touch with me about Tony's story. Hello. Hello. Hi, Jamie. How are you? Good. How are you doing? I am very well, thank you. It is lovely to finally get to talk to you. Yeah. I feel like we sort of first uh, started chatting a while. Quite. Jamie Duke, Tony's mother, was also someone who reached out to me via TikTok. She has been fighting to try and clear her son's name since he was incarcerated and told me about what Tony was like as a kid. Uh, typical boy. He, uh... He's a good kid. He used to get in trouble a lot, but not for anything serious until he was a teenager. But uh, he, he was obsessed with hunting. He wanted to hunt. He was in 4-H his whole life. He used to hunt and do the crafts. He used to do the cooking. He used to enter everything in 4-H. What's 4-H? But, uh, 4-H, it's, uh, I can't even tell you what it stands for now. <laughs> you know, he just turned 34 on Monday. Oh, that's where children raise their animals or live off their land and get rewarded for it. They go to classes, they're groups, they, they accomplish things. Kind of like a Girl Scouts or Boy Scouts, but more for farm kids. Yeah. And he was in shooting sports his whole life. And he used to do competitive orienteering, shooting, bow and arrow, archery, everything. He raised animals. Showed them at the fair, they win ribbons, and then you sell them at auction, and they make money. So, from what he sort of told me, he's quite a, you know, he, he wasn't a lazy kind of guy. When he was seven years old, he used to take the push mower and fill it up with gas and go mow the neighbor's lawns for $5. Yeah. At seven years old. He knew every farmer in our area, and used to, they used to give him the scrap. He used to help them. And then when they had stuff they wanted cleaned up, they would call him and they'd pay him to do it. 
He knew everybody. It's not been easy for Jamie over the years as she spends her days worried about her son being locked away in such a harsh environment. I tell you, you know, people don't get it. The mothers and the fathers of, of these people, that these children that go to prison, it's, it's terrifying because, see, we're in prison too. Yeah. People don't understand that. They, they just don't get it. Every day we f- fear for them, especially when we know they're innocent and they're not supposed to be there. It's, it's a whole other trauma. But, uh, yeah, the, no, nobody gives the parents any credit for what they go through. It's tough having a child in prison. That's all I can say. Yeah, well, as you said, you're, you're essentially doing the time with them. What, what is it? 10, 16 years I've been dealing with this. 16 years. It's a lot of stress. It's a lot of stress. You worry if they eat, if they're getting beat up, if they're getting raped, if they're getting robbed. You know, they're only allowed so much money per month or the state takes it. Mm. So, I mean, it's, it's really hard to eat on $50 a month. You know, as a parent, I don't know if... Do you have children? I have two, yeah. Okay. Uh, as, as they grow, I don't know how old they are, but as they grow... Uh, you learn things about your kids, it, what you teach them, but you also learn when they're telling the truth. There's some that's something that you'll you'll always know about your children. And uh, I don't know he's always been a good kid, and I'm not just saying that he's he's done stupid stuff. Yeah, but I, I know why. I know why because his his adopted father who adopted him when he was eight months old, he like. He's a narcissist. That's all I can tell you. He's a narcissist. He put electric dog collars on Tony's neck and, and would electrocute him yes. and all kinds of things. And and all that came out in a court hearing or in the front of a judge. It was horrible. This man, he just tortured me for 15 years till those kids were adults. It was awful. But he always took it out on Tony. And Tony always, I know in Tony's head, he always thought if he got if he got a good buck, that Jimmy would love him, you know. If he got, if he could get a, get a big trophy deer, his dad would love him. You know. Yeah, he's told it's me that he was always sort of fighting for his father's approval. That's all he ever did his whole life. Jamie has plenty more to say on Tony's situation, as well as more to be said about Tony's adopted father, and we will hear more of that in upcoming episodes. In our previous episode, we heard the moment that detectives first arrived at Tony's house to chat with him about the murder of his friend and neighbour, Ronald Hauser. In fact, Tony took me through the moment he first met Ronald and how they became friends. In fact, Ronald became somewhat of a male role model in Tony's life. My friend Brian asked me if I wanted to do some tree work one day and I jumped in the truck with him at four in the morning. I went to the city of Detroit, started cutting trees. He liked my work ethic and started cutting trees with him all the time on the weekends. Next thing you know, we're having barbecues and riding four-wheelers. And, you know, he was... I didn't really have many male role models in my life. And he became someone I could go to and just hang out with. And, you know, he had no problem letting us know if we was doing something that was wrong. He would let us know that we was on the wrong track, tighten up, get right. Yeah. Or he tried to work it out of us. He always had chores to do around his ranch, you know. I mean, there are countless times that he would knock on my door or call me in the middle of at 9, 10 at night and want to go for a, a pizza snack. And we'd go to a pizza place and we would each order a large pizza, a large breadstick and a two liter and sit in his little car and just smash pizza and breadsticks. 
and laugh and joke, you know, and, mm. and go cut down a bunch of trees the next day. So was he, if that was his job, was he an arborist? Or work. Yeah. Sure. Yes, he is. And then he, uh, he bought a Wasso Speedway racetrack with his cousin Dale. And we'd be out there playing security on the weekend sometimes, getting rid of people. So was he, uh, was he a wealthy man? Watching race his car. I'm, I don't, I, he, I, he did all right for himself. I mean, I never heard him complain. Yeah. You know? So as we're already aware, Tony was visited a month after the murder with two detectives and his parole officer at his home. But this was no formal questioning. I mean, they questioned me that day. Yeah. Uh, at my uh, center island in my kitchen. Yeah, because when he first, when, the, when they first came to my house, you know, he, came, he left and then came back inside and he had the sabots in his hand, you know, and tried to put them in my hand. So I wasn't trying to pay him no attention. Now, we're going to spend a bit of time around the discovery of these sabots, or bullet casings, as it's extremely important. And the way in which such important evidence was seemingly handled has me baffled. I asked Tony about it. Did he photograph the evidence when he found it, or he just found them, picked them up, and I mean, did he treat it treat it like evidence, like you know? No. Is it, is no, he didn't photograph it. Nothing. He they actually what he did was like printed a picture off of the internet from like Google Images, and this was for trial purposes, so there's no telling when he did it. But he actually put X's on a photo where he says he found them. So they got a photo of your yard, printed it, printed it off, and he just put crosses on there where it came from. Yeah. But it's just, I mean, that, that's ridiculous. I already know. Uh, he didn't come get the other detective to be like, hey, look at these. What are we going to do? He just That's why at first I laughed and thought they was doing some good cop, bad cop type of deal because he came back in the house and tried to put them in my hand. Talk about, oh, what are these? I found these in the yard. Well, if it was something serious and you found it in the yard, aren't you supposed to put as part of a crime scene. It becomes a secondary crime scene. Especially if you're investigating a murder. Right, correct. You know, evidence markers, evidence tents and photographs, you know, something and a little more in-depth look of the general area. Not just, oh, all right, well, let's walk out and leave. Yeah, I mean... Because they never brought the other detective back there. Yeah. They left. I followed them. I'm not a detective, but I'm... And, I, and obviously, I've never done anything like this, and I, you know, I'm only someone who watches TV, but I'm assuming... If you're investigating a murder, you turn up at someone's house and you find some sabots on the floor and you go, hold on a second, what are those? You stop everything. You get your partner out there. You're like, hold on, what, what's, what have we got here? We need to take photos of this. We need to get an, like an, like put them in an evidence bag or something. I mean, treat it like evidence. Right, not have them in your bare hands. No. And especially, he said that he's never seen anything like that before. The only time he, they ever seen it was what they recovered at the at the crime scene at the victim's house. 
It's the only other time they've seen something like that. Because they're not familiar with, with shotguns and rifles. They're just, they're cops. They shoot pistols. So their their shells are brass casings. If the only time you've ever seen it was at the, what you found at the supposed crime scene, and then you find it elsewhere, you, I would think you would take it a lot more serious than, than the way they think. Now, this particular part of the story I find interesting. Tony says that he arrived home to find one of the detectives was in his backyard, while his parole officer and another detective were in his driveway. One of the detectives states that he has found some sabots or bullet casings in his yard and asks him if he knows of anyone that might have shot a weapon at his property. Of course, as a felon, it is against the law for Tony to be in possession of a firearm or to, in fact, shoot one. The thing I find interesting is the way in which these sabots were handled, especially as they would later become key evidence in the murder trial. Again, I'm not a detective and probably have watched far too many crime shows and listened to far too many crime podcasts, but I would imagine that if you come across bullet casings while visiting a potential suspect, you might not want to just casually pick them up and put them in your pocket and walk in and try and hand them to the man you're questioning. But again, what do I know? That's why I brought in an expert. Oliver Lawrence is a former police officer with over a decade of experience dealing with these situations. Policing all across Australia, including remote communities in Queensland, Oliver was often the first on scene in dealing with potential evidence. He's also the host of his own podcast, Protect and Serve, where he interviews and speaks with many former detectives and high-ranking law enforcement officers. Now, working as a senior investigator, security intelligence and crisis management expert in London, I caught him between jobs driving through the city to get his opinion on what he would do coming across evidence in this manner. Oh, and yes, you may have noticed that we share a last name. He is, in fact, my brother. If somebody's a suspect or a person of interest to do with a homicide and I found shell casings which match the description of the type of firearm that was involved, say for instance a 40 calibre 9mm round and they were the rounds that we'd spotted in the garden and uh, you know, you'd know, you have to look pretty closely at probably arresting that person immediately, uh, that property becoming a crime scene until such time as you, know, you were satisfied that they weren't. Or scenario two would be is that, you know, um, they're not arrested, you're there for a warrant, you're carrying out inquiries, you seize the casings, and you'll be back in touch if you had a conversation. But to be honest with you, with the seriousness of a homicide or a murder, if somebody's a person of interest and I'm finding casings at the property which match the same calibre weapon um, that was involved in the uh, the murder, uh, I would be looking at detaining that person, arresting them for questioning. Um, I would then be, obviously, the house and the property would become a crime scene and we would conduct a very, very thorough search, either looking for the firearm, uh, other casings or evidence which corroborated our concerns around them being a person of interest and then potentially being the, the suspect slash offender. So prior to asking Oliver about how he would handle the situation, I made no mention of how the evidence was in fact handled in this particular case. Once I had that answer, I then asked if he believed if there would ever be a situation where you might just pick up potential evidence, bring it inside the home of the man you're questioning and try and hand it to them. In my, in my honest opinion, if I found bullet casings, as I've said, which I believe match the same calibre of weapon involved in a homicide, I would be cordoning off that area um, seizing them so it would seem to me to be inappropriate to pick those up in what I would call to be a non forensically sound manner 
present them to the suspect in his home, not in a controlled interview. So you certainly wouldn't put them in your pocket. Um, you, you know, maintaining your crime scene and the integrity of it is one of the most important factors in any homicide. So putting things in your pocket and just quietly walking into a house and going, oh, I found these in the garden, where have these come from? for me is a totally unsound methodology of forensics you know you've got to look at dna transfer you've got to look at fingerprints you've got to look at the integrity of the exhibits it's just so much going on there that i would challenge in terms of the continuity and maintaining the integrity of those bullets because and if someone more more to the point if you're in the garden by yourself who you, you want somebody to come out and corroborate what you found in situ and you need to take a photograph of that so that ultimately when you go to court you can tell the story you know we attended this address for inquiries with a person of interest whilst my colleague was inside the house i just walked around the garden casually did i have a warrant to do so that could be a question you know was i allowed to walk behind there but i fortuitously found these shell casings which i took a photo of in situ and as a result of locating those i closed down the area we detained the person of interest it became a crime scene we seized the rounds took photographs of them in situ suddenly our person of interest has become a suspect and we believe our offender i'm then able to create an interview and question him as to we found these casings in your back garden can you explain how they got there to do it all then and there and it's completely wrong okay so the detectives get tony to take a polygraph test and he passes and they send him on his way. However, Tony says that they are soon back on his doorstep. Well, he left. Well, they came back asking if I, anyone shot here, this and that. And so I put it together. I said, well, obviously, them little stabber halves you got match something. So let's not beat around the bush here. I ain't got time for all that. I've been doing this too long. I know how you guys play. I says, you know, I'm not a part of none of this. We'll just talk to me directly. Enough of this beating around the bush. He says, yeah, you're right something matched so I, was, I gotta know if you let someone shoot here or not i was like no nobody shot here as long as i have been home you know he's like i said i'm being set up i said ain't no one shot in my backyard ain't no one come here to shoot I, he's like well they did look like they could have been thrown over the fence he's like well if you can think of anything let me know and then they went around and got with my the girl I was with started talking to her and wanted to get her away from me and have a polygraph and see if I was lying to them or if she knew of anyone that would have shot and if I would have possibly been paid to cover up for somebody to do some shooting or know something. And my Aunt Tracy ended up having a heart attack and dying. She was supposed to go for her polygraph, and the funeral was then, so we stopped, and then they showed up being disrespectful, and that's how I told them they wanted to talk to us again, you know, talk to a lawyer. I said, because I ain't have nothing to hide. I already passed the polygraph. I went two days after they came to my house the first time, took a polygraph, and, you know, they apologized for harassing me and even offered to help me get my business going with getting into some, you know, getting licensed in a different manner for the hauling I was involved in. So things I thought went quiet. 
Again, Tony and the detectives part ways, but then Tony says after this, he then started being followed everywhere he went by a red car. I, I kept noticing there was this little red car that was always everywhere. When I did a job, um, the same car, I ended up stopping at one of my clients' commercial places. I ran into him, you know, caught him looking like a set of deer in the headlights. And they thought they were going to skate around the building and a piece of equipment stopped them dead in their tracks. They're like, oh, it's just a coincidence. We was just going through the parking lot to cut traffic. I said, so you're admitting to violating traffic laws and cutting traffic and doing all this stuff that you would pull someone over for doing. Oh, no, no, no. I said, yeah, whatever. Go ahead. Go. Well, I lost my phone that day at this job. And... Just a flip phone. You know, I ain't never been big on electronics. Yeah. I like buttons. Uh, well, I never found my phone. Well, later on, when I got the police report, not that I never got a police report, but when I ended up getting or viewing the records from when they raided my house afterwards, that phone was on a thing saying they seized it from my house. Could, could you have, that I lost. Could you have left? Could you have left it accidentally at your house, or you definitely lost it at that job? Or you? Yeah. No, I definitely lost it at that job. Yeah. Okay. Because the girl I was with ended up bringing me a brand new smartphone at that job because I called her from my one of the employees that was working with me. Told her I can't find his phone. I emptied the trailer and everything. Uh, I didn't leave it at home because I had it and talked to people since then. Sure. I had it after lunch and everything. You know, and how many people have like a flip phone? This is 2012 with buttons. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Everybody had, I don't know, all them iPhone or something. phones. Right, iPhones. That's what it was. So we're going to take a short break, and when we come back, we need to continue the conversation surrounding these Sabbaths, because after testing, it would appear that they had even more question marks surrounding them. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science, with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. 
With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full important safety information, visit juviderm.com. Well, as always, it is uh, now my opportunity to say a huge thank you to every single one of you for listening to this show. Again, the One Minute Remaining family continues to grow uh, on a weekly basis and it is just so rewarding and exciting to see how many people are getting involved. So thank you so much indeed for all your support for listening to this show. Don't forget... We've got our private Facebook group open right now for you to join myself and the rest of the OMR family as we discuss these stories as well as other bits and pieces. You can ask any questions that you might have of me or any of the inmates. So just search One Minute Remaining Podcast on Facebook and I'll see you there. Okay, so I told you we'd need to focus quite heavily on these Sabbaths because once discovered, they were sent away for testing and the results... Well, here's Tony to explain. The Sabbaths they found in my backyard were tested, and they weren't. They didn't come back as being a complete set, as being a whole prior to being fired. And they said they matched some at my father's house and the victim's house. Well, the gun I hunted with, I sighted in at my dad's house. So they are like, oh, that's you, this, and that. Well, I had them retested to see if they would match if I, one of the halves they found at my house would match one of the halves at my dad's house to prove that I was set up, that they, you know, because they weren't a complete whole to being, prior to being fired, meaning that the halves he found at my house didn't match. So I had them retested, sent in for retesting. The ones from my dad's, the ones from my house, and the victims to try to match as being, you know, to, to, to prove that they was taken from somewhere and put somewhere else. But when they came back from that testing, they uh, said the ones at my house were a complete matching set prior to being fired, that they matched. The ones at my dad's house were complete set as being matched. And they also found some at my... The other ones that they had that they gathered from my dad's house weren't complete sets but we're fired from the same make and model gun, just a different gun. We got two different guns of the same make and model shooting the same Sabbaths that they believe was used in the murder at my dad's house. From what they say, they found there at his house. And he said, I was the only one to ever shoot that type of gun at his house. All right, so is your head feeling a bit frazzled? Don't worry, mine was as well, as I'm not familiar with firearms or sabots. So a quick lesson in sabots and what they are. A sabot 
is a supportive device used in firearms to fit around a projectile like a bullet or a slug and keep it aligned to the centre of the gun barrel when fired. So it's basically a casing that when fired, once it leaves the barrel of the gun, it separates into two pieces and then the bullet or slug continues on to its intended target. So what Tony is saying to us is that detectives are claiming they found some of these sabots at three separate locations. His house, his father's house, and the house of the victim. However, when tested, it was determined that they didn't match as being the complete set when fired. So you take two halves and then you put them together and they don't match. So what we appear to have is two sets of sabots both of which appear to have been fired from the same make of weapon. Not the exact same gun itself, just the same make. A gun which detectives claim was the weapon that Tony favoured as his weapon of choice when hunting. And a gun they say he was highly proficient in shooting. Now it does seem to appear, with Tony having a criminal past, the detectives seemed especially focused on him in particular when it came to this murder. I asked him about that. Yeah, my lawyer stressed that during trial that because I have a record they just you know deem me to be that person uh, and throughout interrogations and questionings after I became in their custody at first obviously they couldn't charge me with any murder because I didn't do it there was no evidence hmm. there still is no evidence but what they did was charged me with being a felon in possession of a firearm for admitting to going hunting with a gun and for taking weapons from my house. When I got out on parole, I walked them 100 yards to my neighbor's house for safekeeping because I wasn't allowed to have Yep. They charged me with each, each firearm they got from my neighbor's house that I brought over there. There was five of them. They charged me with two felonies per gun. Them were the only ones that stuck because, I mean, it's kind of hard to go to trial on a theory that I was out in the woods hunting with a gun, you know. I mean, I admitted to it, yeah. but there's no evidence of that. You have one minute remaining. And that wraps us up for this episode. But still to come, Tony is officially brought in for questioning and it would appear he wasn't the only one in his family that was. He put a piece of paper in front of me and said, sign this, tell me. Do what we want you to do. Testify against your dad. I'll let you go right now. Next time on One Minute Remaining. One Minute Remaining is a Mash Pumpkin production. Hosted and produced by Jack Lawrence. Editing and sound design by Jack Lawrence and Dom Evans. This podcast is part of the Acast Creator Network. 